The Education Channel supports individual educational goals and encourages creativity for all. Visit uctv.tv slash education. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm so glad you joined us today. This is one of our most important topics to address. It's also the one that is the hardest to address. We have the least time for. So today is going to be an incredible view into what a group of different people and professionals are doing in their own lives and have made room for. And I've just learned so much from them and from other climate experts, and that's helped me deal with my own climate distress. So today, early September, 2021, where are we at? It is year two of the pandemic. We are dancing with COVID. We're here, we're there, we're two steps back today. We have an unstable situation with COVID for a while, but we also have an unstable climate for the rest of our lives. So we need to change our expectations of what to expect. The warming of our planet has caused many of these interrelated problems, heat waves, droughts, fires, smoke, floods, hurricanes. Today, we have many colleagues and friends in New Orleans in crisis due to Hurricane Ida. We have 84 large fires in the United States today. We have one very close to us encroaching upon Lake Tahoe that's already burned 200,000 acres. Today, for me and most of my panelists sitting in Northern California, the air quality is poor. The sky is opaque and dark. So we need to counter this daily news, these daily experiences with action, purpose, problem solving. What, what does that look like? You're here because you care and you want to be doing more. We're going to hear today from uh, Ashley McClure, McClure, who is a co-founder of the California Organization for health professionals and people concerned about climate and health. It's called Climate Health Now. We're joined by Robin Cooper, a, a volunteer associate clinical professor here at UCSF, a psychiatrist. She is the founder of our own department's Climate Crisis and Health Task Force. And she's also a co-founder of the Climate Psychiatry Alliance, which we'll hear more about. We are so pleased to have Kimberly Williams join us. She is, has a PhD in organizational management, which she has applied to climate. She's executive director of the National Medical Association and program manager of a program she founded called Georgia Clinicians for Climate Action. So we'll get to hear more about that. And we also have Mark Coleman, who is a deeply experienced meditation teacher who focuses on nature and the wild. He has a program called Awake in the Wild. He specializes in helping revive climate activists and people with burnout from their social act action work. He is the founder of the Nature Summit, which is online, and there's a link to that on our resource page. Lastly, we have Ed Maybach, who is a professor um, um, at George Mason University. He is the founder of the Climate Communications Center there. He is pretty much the world's leading scientist in 
social communications about climate. How do we talk about climate effectively so that we can activate helpful actions and not hopelessness? Okay, so we'll start by hearing from each speaker and then we'll have discussions. So Ed, welcome. Thank you, Alyssa, for that lovely welcome. Um, and uh, in addition to specializing in how to communicate about climate change, which I do, and I've done that full time for the past 15 years, in reality, I'm, I'm a public health professional, first, foremost, and always. Um, that is how I found the issue of climate change and why I work on the issue of climate change, because it is the biggest public health challenge that, that humanity faces. Um, and as Alyssa said, I am also a spawn of UCSF. Uh, my father's paycheck put food on the, the table and uh, paid for college and my and my master's in public health degree. So I'm grateful to him and my mother and to UCSF in general for for getting me to where I am today. But really, I want to focus my com. I'm going to assume most of you also are connected to UCSF. Most of you are health professionals in one way or another. Um, and I, I want to talk a bit about us as health professionals and why why we're so important in this issue of climate change. Um, I would contend, and in fact, I've published an article that I've put on the, the resource page, that we as health professionals, we have a unique and necessary role in waking up our fellow Americans about the issue of climate change and, and bringing them to the table to engage on the issue. And the reason why I contend that we have a unique and necessary role is, is twofold. One is that we are, we as health professionals, we're one of the few remaining categories of professionals that are trusted in America. And, and I know that we all feel a little bit um, embattled as, you know, and perhaps less trusted than we did 18 months ago as a result of public reaction to, to much about the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, but in reality, even the, the surveys continue to show we are uniquely trusted. We're right up there with school teachers, which is a pretty sweet and wonderful place to be in terms of being highly trusted. Um, but the second reason why I say we have a, a unique and necessary role is because we're bringing a perspective to this conversation about climate change that is unique, a perspective that most Americans have never heard. Um, it's personally relevant to people. And by, by that perspective, of course, I mean how it influences our health, how climate change is a human health issue, not just a plant's penguins and polar bears issue. And that by definition makes it incredibly personally relevant. I know from my research that when we present information about the human health relevance of climate change, people says it, people tell us that, that it, they're in, they find it to be interesting, informative, personally relevant, engaging, much more so than much of the other, many of the other kinds of information that we present to people in our research. Um, while it is absolutely true, sort of the good news is that it's absolutely true that, that public attitudes about climate change in America are changing rapidly, becoming America is rapidly waking up to the realities of climate change. It's also true that we're not waking up fast enough. We have a critical moment right now, a moment in history right now in America, where we we need to do everything humanly possible to, to fully wake up members of the public so that they will fully engage in encouraging and indeed demanding climate action from our policymakers in our, our city and county halls, um, in our state houses and, and on Capitol Hill. 
And we, we, as health professionals, we collectively have an opportunity to do that because we can reframe the conversation about climate change, as I said, on things that people care about, on our health. Um, I can tell you from our research that when we talk about climate change as a human health issue, it resonates with people across the political spectrum. It's one of the few issues, one of the few ways to talk about climate change that resonates with people across the political spectrum. And I don't have to tell you why that's so important in America today. But the other reason why we have this huge collective opportunity is because when we talk about climate change as a human health issue, we will also be talking about climate solutions as health solutions, solutions that benefit our health immediately and in our own community if our community takes those actions. So unlike the benefits of climate solutions, which will slowly unfold over many generations and, and slowly unfold around the world, the, benefit, the health benefits of climate solutions unfold almost immediately in profound ways in our own community. It becomes so much easier to make the sell, if you will, to your local uh, elected officials when you can promise them the benefits, the health benefits of taking climate actions today. So in conclusion, I just wanna leave you with one last thought, and that is the key to building political will on the issue of climate solutions. And we need to build political will because we need to implement climate and health policies, equitable climate and health policies as quickly as we can. And the key to building that kind of political will is to build public will. And we, my friends, we health professionals, we have a unique and perhaps necessary role to play in building public will. Back to you, Alyssa. Thank you so much. You have been prolific about this area. There, there are many publications that Ed has uh, published in you know, the last 10 years, especially the last year, showing how much uh, people trust healthcare professionals and how attitudes are changing. And that when you show scientific consensus, when you talk about the consensus, you have the power of your discipline behind you, that people then are more they believe it more, they're more motivated, they change more. Some of Ed's papers are on our resource page, our website. Okay, wonderful, thank you. So now I'd like to um, invite Ashley McClure to tell us about her work with Climate Health Now. Why did you start this? Where do you work? And how do you fit it into your life? Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. So I'm a primary care physician. I work in the East Bay. Um, and I'm going to tell you a very personal story that that will bring um, bring me forward to uh, being a co-founder of Climate Health Now. So I don't I don't always go so far back in my story, but given Mark's expertise and kind of the the theme of today, I will. Um, so I grew up in Seattle, and um, when I was nine, I was given a not so friendly new stepdad, and my my family um, went through kind of a big disruption. And my new elementary school happened to be across the street from a horse stable, a little girl's dream, and a state park um, in the Seattle area. So I had the good fortune of um, starting to ride ponies in, in a Pacific Northwest old growth forest um, in that time of my life. And I, I found my, it was the first time that I found a sense of belonging and safety in the beauty of a nature in balance. Um, which has continued to ground and nourish me ever since and still does um, on my bike rides a couple times a week for my mental health. 
So flash forward a lot of decades, um, my husband and I welcomed our baby girl, her name is Kala Lucia, in May of 2018. <clears throat> and that um, gave me the opportunity to take maternity leave. So I stepped off the fast moving train of medical training and then primary care, which um, I'd practiced for seven years at that point. And on August 19th, actually, um, I know because I watched the Inconvenient Truth sequel on my phone as a new mom. My, my daughter was nursing. I didn't want to move her. So I, I just kind of happened upon that documentary. Um, being a new mom, you know, she was about 10 weeks old at that point. And I, I just, I was sobbing as I watched that film. And, you know, until that point, climate had been kind of an intellectual, you know, two degrees C, like some experts are going to take care of this if it's such a big deal. But being a mom and being so viscerally connected to the safety of this little human and, you know, the generation that she represents, it became not an intellectual thing. Like climate became visceral and personal for me being a new mom and having watching that documentary. You know, I kind of flash forward to California when she's 30. Um, you know, we're, our wildfires now are terrible and, you know, just envisioning a desert um, year round climate fires and, and really with where we're headed, the, the, the fear that she'll never really get to make the choice to be a mom because it might be a totally irrational choice by then. Um, and that she might not get to feel that safety and belonging that has, has like, you know, protected me in nature's perfect balance um, with the path we're on. So I kind of describe it as it was like my mama bear's instinct to protect my cub met climate um, in that moment. And as if that wasn't enough, then uh, November 8th, the climate, pri climate crisis again, you know, just like punched me and, and really changed my life forever um, as Northern California was burning in the infamous campfire. So many of you may remember there were 13 days before Thanksgiving that year where we couldn't safely go outside because of the toxic climate fire smoke. So I was huddled inside with, she was like five months old at that point, you know, with the air purifier and a drafty old house, probably not even working that well. And every morning I would wake up to see if the air quality index was better and like, can we safely go outside for a walk? I was on maternity leave, you know, that can get really intense. And every day I did, and I was, you know, depressed to see yet again, the AQI is 160 or 200. But I started roaming the globe and I saw that in India and in China, their air quality is always that bad or worse. It's not just from an acute fire, it's from the coal, you know, power plants, from the fossil fuel infrastructure that we've built across this single planet. And I just had this, um, you know, nightmare preview, like we're, we're, we're walking towards the reality in India and in China everywhere if we don't completely change course and it's you know that was that was when I I really I couldn't I couldn't continue my life without climate being kind of the new centerpiece because um because of being a mom really so I started showing up at the citizens climate lobby meetings <laughs> Love them. It was my first climate home. And I was in, you know, crowded community rooms, nursing Kala way beyond her bedtime. And that is an amazing organization. But I realized I, 
I wasn't using my greatest tool, which like Ed just said, is being a member of one of society's most trusted professions. So I came back from maternity leave and I started talking to any colleague who would talk about the climate crisis, environmental justice, anybody. Um, I started networking and, you know, trying to find colleagues who were also ready to bring their medicine upstream. Um, and I found really amazing people like Robin Cooper, who you'll hear from shortly. And, um, you know, I found other colleagues who realized that we have such a role in the social determinants of health because they're more powerful than our clinical care. But we have to kind of create that new sense of professional responsibility. So we've been doing it ever since. Um, Climate Health Now really launched around um, a mobilization for the youth climate strike in September of 2020. Uh, we showed up at Speaker Pelosi's office, Senator Feinstein's office, Senator um, uh, Harris at the Times office. And we had signs saying climate change is a health emergency. Like we need you to help us do our job of, of protecting health by acting on climate rapidly. So um, Climate Health Now, at this point, um, we're a nonprofit across California. And what our vision is, is that every health professional in the state is a climate activist, really, in order to fulfill our professional responsibility to protect health. Because in some dark days, maybe like today, you know, doing a great job of controlling diabetes or, you know, any of the other things we often do, it, it feels a lot like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And the meaning of moving upstream and bringing our professional expertise to the highest yield um, things like advocating for climate solutions and bold government action is what we're doing with Climate Health Now. And it's, I can't, can't state overstate how meaningful it's been for me professionally too to link arms with colleagues so i'll leave it there um, and say we'd love you to join us we are open to all health professionals in california and our website is um, just www.climatehealthnow.org and we would love you to join us and we need you all to <laughs> thank you ashley thank you so much for your passion and for starting this this local organization, because statewide change is so much easier to make than, than federal change, and it also serves as a, as a model. So next, I'd like to welcome Robin Cooper, who is a, um, one of the most inspiring people to me. She has retired early to work on climate, and she's, she's kind of like Ed in that she's the center of a wheel, and she connects people, and things happen. So you've started a lot of activism and advocacy in our city, in our Bay Area, and nationally with the Psychiatry Climate Alliance. So tell us about that, Robin. What drives you and how did you do all this? Um, thanks a whole lot, um, Alyssa, and you um, make me blush. Um, most of you don't, uh, who are here today don't know me, know me, but I wanna tell you a little bit. I don't normally get incredibly anxious, but today I have a knot in my stomach. My stomach is just turning. And I think it's the things that Alyssa said at the beginning, the fires that are all over California, but then just in this week, the fires and then Hurricane Irma in Louisiana on the day of the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. 
And then the massive flooding that I woke up to in the news this morning in New York with the tail end of that. This is the wake up call again and again and again for all of us. And that knot in my stomach today is not softening. This is about turning that anxiety into action. And, we're, and I'm going to talk a bit about how I've done that in my little sphere. What's happening all over the globe reminds us that the impacts of climate change are escalating, that they are local, and they are very severe all over the globe. But just as it is that it is happening everywhere, there are incredible numbers of solutions. The solutions are many. We're no longer at a time when there was just one thing that was going to be able to address and put us on the right course. So when I think of being involved in, in solutions around climate health and climate crisis, I think of it as a big, big jigsaw puzzle. And you can't see the whole picture of that jigsaw puzzle just from one of the pieces. But all of those pieces add up together and create that picture of what has to happen in the realm of climate change and, and climate health. And I want to say, in that picture, all of those little jigsaw pieces tell us that there are many, many ways to engage. Now, not all of those ways of engagement are equally effective. Um, we're no longer at the place where you can be proud of yourself for recycling your plastic or taking uh, your own bag to the grocery store. There have to be much more powerful tools. And I think when one thinks about getting involved, you have to think about the levers of power, how and where you can have an influence. And when people ask me how to get involved, I say, find the things where you have a fundamental basis of knowledge, skills, capacities, talents, temperaments, and where you can make a difference with your leverage. And so that's how my story evolved, much like Ashley's. I started politically. I, too, have been an activist in Citizens Climate Lobby. But then through that, I discovered, hmm, I have more skills if I, if I hone down to help because I'm a physician. Well, then it became clear to me psych there was a big body of mental health issues and that psychiatrists were basically silent in that arena. So I said, ah, mental health, that's my field. I need to speak here. And, um, and it's not that because I believe that psychiatry in and of itself is going to change the world in regards to the climate. That would be grandiose. That would be, oh, us little psychiatrists going to change the world. It's not going to happen. And I just want to say that kind of sense is something that we all struggle with a bit in the climate. All of us today are going to sound like we know what we're talking about and we've got this under our belt. But all of us, I think, struggle with that sense of are we too small to handle the enormity? And it, that feeling, again, has to be fended off and participate as a component. So. This business of mental health, 
I found six or seven other like-minded psychiatrists so some seven years ago, six or seven years ago, and we formed a group called Climate Psychiatry Alliance with the intention of being nimble and able to speak about mental health impacts, but also with the knowledge that if we did it from our small little stage, we wouldn't be effective. So we intentionally wanted to integrate into our professional organization, the American Psychiatric Association. And I have to say, the APA started with the idea that there was, this was not a psychiatric issue. This was a public health issue. In the time we've organized, that's been 180 turnaround. We now have in our Climate Psychiatry Alliance, which is the, the group that I've joined, that I've formed, um, over close to 675 members, I think a little bit more. We've penetrated a lot into, the, into our professional organizations with a number of policies that we've put forward and have been adopted, including divestment of fossil fuels of APA's financial holdings. We now have just created a permanent standing committee at the American Psychiatric Association on Climate and Mental Health. And the, the, the organization has made a commitment to communicate publicly about this. Now, again, APA psychiatry organizations aren't going to do it themselves. It is only if APA joins with other medical organizations, and we have joined with the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health, Ed Maybach's a leader there, and made lots of alliances with other groups. We can't do this alone. We, I think that for me, doing it in the lane where you have impact is essential and then building alliances together so that we have ways that we work together to build our voice, to expand our voice. Now, in the discussion, I can address some of the specific ways we've worked and how we've done that and the, the strategies of, of, uh, that we've gone about, if you're interested. But I want to leave you with one specific quote from, from someone who precedes us. Rudolf Virchow, a German um, physis, physician and pathologist from 200 years ago, gave us a warning ahead of time. And he saw, he believed that diseases were a reflection of social failures, much of what we call social determinants of health now. And he gave us a forewarning of what we're facing now. He said, Shall the triumphs of human genius serve no other aim than making the human race miserable? Is that the legacy we're seeing now from the Industrial Revolution and our dependence on fossil fuels? And he also gave us the, the permission. He said, medicine is a social science, but politics is nothing more than medicine on a large scale. We need to take that and we need to make policies that will make a difference. Thank you. Just so, so well said. I think that our youth is very, very vulnerable to hopelessness and that 
getting them engaged in health of the world is going to be a, a new goal of our whole educational system. So I love this view of um, politics as, as health and healthcare. Wow. So we are going to talk about more about that feeling of not being enough, not doing enough. And I love your, your analogy of a jigsaw puzzle where each piece matters, that we have these critical pieces and the piece is in the lane where we have impact. And so that's a question for each one of us to ask, what is in our sphere of influence? I'd like to turn it over to Kimberly Williams. Kimberly, we'd, we'd love to hear about the work you've been doing and the, the new fellowship you've developed and, and the big why, why you do this work. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alyssa. These are great examples of the work that's being done all over the country. And I also got involved similarly I think to some of the others, but uh, just a little bit different. My work was in health equity and understanding that climate solutions are health solutions is what led me right over into the work of climate change because these solutions are the same. So lending my voice to this issue was very easy to do. And I encourage you to do the same. So let me share with you more about our fellowship program that was recently designed. And hopefully some of you can, can implement a similar program in your areas. And to provide some clarification, today I'm actually representing the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health and our partnership with the National Medical Association who I also work with. And we are in the Southeastern states and we've developed this unique climate and health equity fellowship. And I know we've talked a lot today about California and the wildfires, but there's also a significant amount of uh, part of the country down South that's impacted by climate change. And the Southeast of course is no different than the Midwest. However, what we've noticed in the Southeast is that the red line communities are impacted by the social determinants of health and are severely affected by some of the remnants that have not yet been resolved. So whether living in the path of hurricanes and flood zones with no ability to evacuate or our outdoor workers, our farm workers, both urban and rural, who are overburdened by heat stress, to transportation inequities or energy efficiencies all over the country. Environmental injustice and climate change has become indeed a human health emergency, and it needs our action now. And I'm repeating what you've already heard. So this Equity Fellowship is training doctors of color to become knowledgeable communicators, advocates, and policy leaders, not only learning about the basics of climate change and its impact on physical and mental health, but also on sustainability strategies and policies that offer solutions. By the end of our 10-month program, each doctor will have completed a capstone project. 
The capstone projects vary depending upon a doctor's specialty, the community they live or work in, and their personal passion. I'll share with you a few examples today of some of the capstone projects. We have an ER doctor who has developed a volunteer extreme weather team. He works with homeless during the hurricane and flooding season, but he is actually building a toolkit to help guide professionals, health professionals all over the country who want to work and advocate for low wealth communities. He's looking for climate solutions for those who are often seen as an afterthought. We have an anesthesiologist who has researched policy and is advocating to eliminate the use of certain toxic anesthetic gases that are used for surgeries and being released into the atmosphere, contributing to the greenhouse gases that are exacerbating climate change when there are other anesthesia gases available. And my last example is a rural family physician who has seen the impacts to the health of her patients living near nuclear plants, causing a number of illnesses. The transition to clean energy away from fossil fuels and nuclear energy would make a significant impact to the quality of life for her patients and therefore her published op-eds and her testimony before state legislators here uh, about energy democracy is making a difference. So in summary, these doctors and others you've heard from today are not anomalies, but a growing cohort of health professionals like Ashley, like Robin, like myself, who are educating patients, their colleagues, and policymakers to advocate for climate solutions that are indeed health solutions. And they look like you, they look like me, and I encourage you to get involved wherever you are, whatever capacity you have, large or small. Get involved. As Robin mentioned, stay in your lane, but I encourage you to, to the work is out there. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much, Kimberly. It's, it's such an exciting program and I hope that it's replicated exponentially in the next year and how wonderful that you're empowering black physicians um, because we, we know there's so much environmental injustice to black communities. I would like to turn to Mark Coleman as our last speaker. Mark is one of the lead meditation teachers at Spirit Rock. He, he has a meditation teacher training program. I've had the good fortune to go through. He teaches in the UK and in the US and it's probably virtual now. And he comes to us from Nicasio Valley uh, from the trees. He came down from the hills. He was leading uh, one of the nature retreats. So he, so thank you for joining us, Mark. And sorry to pull you away from the trees. And also how lucky you are to be there. And uh, it's been, you know, nature has been one of the most common ways people have reported coping with this pandemic. And as someone who lives in the city, uh, you know, I can tell you it's, it's had a huge effect on me. And one of the beauties of nature is that you don't have to have a lot of training to benefit from being in nature. 
welcome. Thank you, Alyssa Yang. Thank you for all the speakers. And I just feel so inspired by the amazing work that, that you're all doing. And it gives me hope that uh, given the, the trust and the confidence people have in, still have in uh, medical health professionals, that you can have some really important, profound influence. Um, I am calling in from California. I just looked at the air quality index in South Lake Tahoe, which, as you know, is close to burning, being evacuated, 22,000 being evacuated. And the AQI is, the air quality index is 421, which is classified as extremely hazardous. And of course, this is a public health issue and emergency, as Kimberly was saying. And it's also a mental health issue. Um, as Robin was speaking to around the, the levels of eco-anxiety, eco-grief, and all the distress and the uncertainty that's being layered uh, into our already stressful life. And so in, including my program today, I had to move my location four times to find a place that was safe enough from fires and from smoke and to have some decent air quality. So it's very real, as we know, it's in our faces. <clears throat> And at the same time, I'm also very aware about what truly motivates people to act. And we've been receiving decades of data about the bleakness of our ecological situation. And yet that hasn't really created too much of a groundswell of movement of action, although it's essential that we have good data as we do. But what really motivates people is their heart and is love and is connection and is inspiration and a passion, just as we were hearing um, earlier from um, uh, who is Ashley about the, the love she has for her child and wanting her child to be able to have her own children. And, um, and so what is it that allows us to be touched, to be moved by love and connection and inspiration and beauty? And so one of the things that I've done with my work, I'm a meditation teacher, but I specialized the last 20 years in integrating nature um, experiences and practices uh, into mindfulness work uh, as a way of um, helping people connect viscerally, sensorily with nature. We're becoming an indoor species. We spend 95% of our time indoors. The typical child can often spend 12 hours a day on a screen. And so we're losing connection with the natural world. And when we lose that connection, then nature becomes a concept. It becomes abstract. And when we hear about various ecological crises, it doesn't impact as much because we're not so directly connected. So, I've, so the reason I've chosen my work to take, whether it's burnt out activists, environmentalists, healthcare professionals, anybody who uh, is in need of some nourishment, inspiration, rejuvenation. Um, I think it's essential that we encourage people to go outside just as they're now giving prescriptions in Ireland and Scotland and South Korea and many other countries, giving prescriptions, not medicine, but nature, that we're curing nature deficit disorder, which Richard Louvre spoke about how our children are, are, are sort of being deprived of that essential nature contact. And so um, as dealing with the, the mental health component of the ecological crisis, when we go outside, what I try to emphasize is as well as taking in the gravity of the situation to also remember that spring still happens, that the moon still rises, that the birds still return 
from migration, that there's beauty in gardens and flowers and grasses and pollinating insects. And when people have a lived visceral connection with the natural world, it touches us. It kindles joy. It kindles love. It kindles connection. It can also kindle sadness and grief for what we're losing, but it allows us to actually feel some sense of well-being and the, the situation we're in now, we, one of the key qualities we're needing is resilience. And when we have direct contact with nature, especially when we bring a kind of a contemplative attention to it, it allows us a sense of restoration, beauty, nourishment, and most importantly, love. And when we feel love, we're much more inclined to act, to take care, to steward as we take care of our loved ones and children and family um, so um, I'm a big proponent of uh, advocating uh, for people, for healthcare professionals, advocating for patients to go outside, to take a breath of fresh air, if of course the air quality is good enough, and to feel that nourishment, and then to listen to see how that love and connection and inspiration wants to inform you to act, to steward, to collaborate, to, to activate, to campaign to put pressure on local legislators, national legislators. Um, but it's important we first also take care of ourselves, take care of our health. And one way we do that is taking the benefit of whatever nature is around us. Of course, many people live in the inner cities, but there maybe is a park or a tree or there's sky or there's clouds or, um, you know, we make a little extra effort to find some natural resource or a garden or a plant on our desk even can actually connect us with the beauty and the resilience of nature and of course nature can teach us a lot about how we respond to crises um, and catastrophes and i just live next to a redwood grove and um, the fire just came through there recent actually yesterday um, we almost had to evacuate because it was a local and you walk through a redwood forest and you see the profound resilience they have to fire. And so there's tremendous lessons we can learn from nature. But most important is to get out, to feel it, to connect with it, to feel love and let that galvanize uh, both our health and also our action. I'll pause there for now. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. It would be wonderful uh, to, to end today with a meditation and uh, you can trans, you know, Transmute the nature there. I saw where you just came from the hill. Maybe you can show us uh, the view there. We are all stirred up, as Robin said. It is uh, everyone here listening could benefit from some grounding and uh, being in touch with our own earth elements. So we have about 10 minutes for discussion. I'd like to welcome all the panelists to come back. And we have a lot of wonderful questions, both uh, from our panelists as well. I'm sorry, from our audience as well as some that were uh, sent in earlier. So I'm gonna start with, um, with Ashley's point. Um, this is our responsibility as, as healthcare professionals to do something and not just to watch this and not just to treat some you know, blood pressure and allergies and asthma that won't help when the air becomes so bad that it creates problems for most of us. So it's like mopping up the water without turning off the faucet. So if it's our responsibility, but it's not our day job, how do we take time? How do we create time for this? How do busy people fit this in? What can they do that's high impact? So one of the um, early type in questions was, how can we convince others to prioritize climate advocacy? 
given our own current context, pandemic, social unrest, uh, major world events, there's, there's a lot going on in our personal lives and in our public lives. So anyone who wants to take a crack at that, Ashley, I'll let you start. Sure. Um, the perennial question. Um, my my sense is, you know, I you might hear the word intersectionality thrown around a lot of how how is climate related to white supremacy and how is climate a racial justice issue? And my sense is that, um, I mean, we really can connect the climate crisis to to what concerns most people um, with just a little bit of, you know, observation. So if somebody's concern is economic challenges, you know, I think it's related to, yeah, capitalism without regulation is really harmful. It's, it's harming, you know, working people and it's also um, exploiting the planet. And I think, I think the work of those of us who are already concerned is really is showing the connection so that it feels personal and, and we can connect climate to everything. Um, it just is a matter of following the threads back. So I think it's, you know, making it personally relevant for everybody, which is totally doable. Can I add something to that? Which is that uh, the, the beauty of taking action is it feels good, right? We, climate change is a big, scary problem. It's a global problem. I can't do a whole lot about it, but boy, everything I do do about it, it makes me feel better. Um, and, it, and if I bring others in to, to work with me, makes them feel better and it makes me feel better knowing that I brought them into. So it's, it's, you know, it's sort of the classic thing that if you want to do something important, bring two of your friends into this party and ask them to bring two of their friends, et cetera. And, and next thing you know, you've got, you know, climate health now in California, you've got the climate psychiatry Alliance growing by leaps and bounds. We've got the, uh, the, the Georgia clinicians for climate action, Kimberly's group in Georgia growing by leaps and bounds and and their voices are getting louder and louder by by the day so they're taking action is important and and not the least of which because it, it actually helps us it helps renew us as as mark was saying so uh, at the risk of um following ed um with psychiatrists being the feel-good profession um <laughs> i actually think the work brings meaning to my life it doesn't always feel good um, but I want to just say the point of the of the puzzle is there's a place for everyone and you don't have to do it full time and you don't have to turn your life over. Most people have other things they have to do, but you can find the place within your realm that there is a tag on this and then address that. Just as Kimberly said, the homeless project, the uh, anesthetic project, there's a place that each can have a voice and move your organizations to be able to take some voice and leverage and then join with the others, build our voice so that there's an orchestra together. Kimberly and Mark, did you want to add? Yes, I'll, I'll go next. So I, working in another organization, I, I, uh, go to the Capitol on a regular basis, and I talk with our legislators about a number of issues, and I realize, well, I'm already here. I can talk about climate change and climate solutions, and the legislators want to hear about those things, 
And the more I talk about it, the more they're grabbing others. Come hear about this. Let's talk more about this. So they're just as interested as anyone else. So that's been one avenue. And I will say, if you don't have a lot of time on your hands at your computer, a quick letter to the editor, if you've done some research, a quick op-ed, anything that you feel you can contribute uh, that takes just a little bit of time, go ahead and do that. And you don't have to go to DC, although it's lots of fun to go to the Capitol and uh, lobby congressmen in DC, but they come to the districts and they're in our districts now. And one thing you can do is make sure that your members of Congress support the reconciliation bill that's before the Congress now. Um, if Biden doesn't have that in hand when he goes to the international meetings in November, um, he's gonna go with his hands behind the back, empty handed. That's what he can bring mm -hmm. at this moment in time. But mm -hmm. there's always something that we can address with our members of Congress. Mm -hmm. I Thank you. These were all wonderful answers. And I, I want to just add my personal experience, which is that um, I, Kimberly's example of she's in Congress, she has ear, ears listening, and she's going to bring in the climate topic. I think we all feel tabooed. We think people don't want to hear. We're speaking to people because we have a role. Maybe it's about their health. Maybe we're lecturing. And so it turns out that rather than siloing all those parts of our life, whether it's you know school, institutions, lecturing, social, we need to bring climate. We need to be talking about it. We need to talk about it at dinner. So uh, for example, I was giving a lecture um, to the medical students and I get this email saying, Robin Cooper is asking you to incorporate climate. She's done that for all the lectures in our, in our unit. And I thought, well, why didn't I think of that? You know, and Robin said, Alyssa, why don't you? I mean, it was just ridiculous that um, I would not think of bringing in climate to like, you know, lectures on wellness and social determinants of health. It's the biggest social determinant of health. So it's flipped things for me rather than looking for little doors open and people wanting to hear about climate, bring it to connect it to all the, the topics, the ways that you're involved in uh, public life. So the, another question, there's two questions we have to get to. Um, this first one, and you could each say it quickly, is if you had the chance to donate $5,000 to a nonprofit, <laughs> where, where would you put your money? And I'm also going to say, if you have a second answer for, you know, let's say $500,000, uh, $500, would it be a different answer? Where should people put some of their resources? Well, Climate Help Now is accepting donations, but I think the answer is one that feels close to you. Um, and, you know, if it's in your, uh, mo you know, if you just Google like climate in your city, climate organizations, um, I think donating this to one that feels connected to you and that you can hopefully then, you know, participate with, uh, with your time, not just your money, both is great. One is better than the other, than, than neither. Um, but I think one that feels meaningful. So all of us have organizations that are doing awesome work. Um, so uh, a great question. <laughs> and I think I think it's a great question. Depends if you have big bucks or little bucks, because your little bucks 
are going to go further in these small organizations that barely have any financial foundation as Climate Help Now, as Climate Psychiatry Lions, Kimberly, I don't know. If you got big bucks, you can you can have a bigger splash, but the major big greens have very elaborate fundraising capacities that smaller groups do not have. So that's just a way to think about it. And the other is, you know, voting matters and who are our elected officials matter enormously, enormously. And money makes a difference in those campaigns. And so strategically thinking about that, which is not specifically climate groups or climate health, but Thank you, Robin. Voting rights are a climate issue. I mean, they threaten everything. And um, while Cal you know, California, it may not be necessarily the place to, to don't be donating money because other states have, um, they'll have a bigger impact in other states that are less. But Georgia related. is. Georgia. Ed? Oh, I'd be remiss in my, my job as a board member of the Global Climate and Health Alliance which is headquartered in Berkeley of all places, but is having an amazing impact organizing health professionals around the world. So, and, and trust me, any donation to Global Climate and Health Alliance will, will be a donation that will help. Okay, my next question is how you do this for a sustained period. How do you maintain optimism and hope as things get worse? How can you, what advice do you have to people who feel their efforts won't make a difference, they feel alone, or they feel hopeless? What helps you? Well, I think, um, you know, rekindling, continuing to rekindle the connection with whatever it is that inspires you, whether that's the, you know, and it could be as simple as gardening, right? We see how incredibly renewable and restorative uh, the earth is and how resilient it is. Um, so I think it's important that we actually be mindful of what we do with our attention to be to take in the, 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 the immensity of the climate emergency and also to look at what's also still surviving, being restored or thriving. And there are still ecosystems and species that are being saved and and, and so turning our attention to the to the goodness that's the, the millions of people who are doing phenomenal work worldwide. I think we have to pay attention to that as well as the, the bleak data. Uh, I also often get asked about what gives me hope. And it's not, and I appreciate very much what you've said, Mark, um, about where to get that restorative quality. But you know what? I don't spend a lot of time on hope. I mean, I know if we don't do the work now, the world is going to look much less good than what we can impact now. And we're not getting out of this clean. We're not getting out of this without big, big damage to the world that we are. But if we don't do the work now, the costs are going to be exponentially more. And so I don't pay attention a lot to the, to the thoughts about how hope. And I have my own personal hopes. I hope my grandchild can at one can play outside. But thank you, Robin. We're a yeah. yeah, I think you know both 
focusing our attention on all the good and positive and the nature that we still have and saving it is critical. Where are we putting our attention? It has to be balanced. And Robin, your, you know, your, the way you spend your time is if we all did at least a percentage of that, we would be, um, it would be the answer to our hope. Ed, you had something to say. Oh, I was just going to re uh, reprise a theme I, I used before, which is I actually find doing the work to be enormously restorative. My dear friend and a friend of many of us on the, in this conversation, Courtney Howard, a emergency room physician way up north in Yellowknife, uh, 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 Canada, she, she says, I've stopped worrying. I just do the work. And, <laughs> and for me, that doing the work is restorative. Ah, I love it. Actually, very quick. <laughs> yeah. This, I, I have found new best friends. And I think this solidarity that I have experienced in climate work, I've never known that kind of meaning in relationships before. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Kimberly, did you have anything, last words to say? No, I will let us move on. I, okay. I ditto everything everyone else has said. Thank you so much. I'll just lastly say that I am very... Um, solution to my own climate distress has been saying what's in my lane. I work on, you know, emotions. I can, you know, sit here and um, can go nowhere and we can let our distress live in our body or we can use the emotion to fuel climate action. So with the advice um, as advisors with Ed, Robin and Ashley, who are all advising this project, we're developing a climate advocacy um, short term intervention that works from climate distress to climate activation with my colleagues, if you want to sign up for it, it's climateresilience.online. We're taking names and I'm still waiting to try to fundraise the money for it. So it's it's a project that will start with no specific start date at this moment. Um, so with that, thank you so much everyone for your amazing questions, the sharing of what you are all doing with your life energy and your life force. It makes this terrible sky I see today more more tolerable, you know, it's the purpose that we all feel in, in doing what we can.